Amen. Um, I'd like to say a few words of introduction before I read the text and talk to you about where I think we're going. Uh, But before I do that, let me tell you that we're going to read from Mark 16. And so why don't you turn there while I'm introducing the text. We are um, heading into Easter. We're we're a couple weeks away. And the next few weeks, we're going to focus our eyes several different times on the heart of the gospel. The good news of the kingdom of God, Jesus' call to take that good news to the nations or to all peoples. We'll look closely at the center of the gospel, which is Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead and his bringing about of new creation. But we're doing that um, not just because it's Easter, but because we feel the Lord stirring in our hearts to start a new series. We think shortly after Easter, uh, looking through the Gospel of Matthew, through the lens of what is the good news of the kingdom of God, and what does it mean to be restored, restorers, or rebuilt, rebuilders, those who are working with Jesus. And so we're intentionally today starting at the end of the story with the commission so that we can then start back again at the beginning and read the whole story through the lens of Jesus' instructions or Jesus' commission to take this gospel to all people. And... Uh, this morning, I'm going to do, I'll, I'll introduce that in a second. I'm going to do something a little bit different. But turn with me to Mark chapter 16. Uh, I said we're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew. And so that's why I'm going to Mark today. Because uh, each one of the Gospels has a, a separate you know, incident or recording of Jesus giving this command to his disciples. This, this, it's, uh, it's a command, but it's also a, a how do you say, a commission. Yeah. Oh, that's what they call it in Matthew, don't they? A commission. A commission to each of them. And um, each one's unique. It's got a unique flavor. And so since we're going to go through Matthew later, I felt led to to preach from Mark this morning. So Mark chapter 16, starting at verse 15. Later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them. For their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name they will drive out demons they will speak in new tongues they will pick up snakes with their hands and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well after the lord jesus had spoken to them he was taken up into heaven And he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it.
quick show of hands, who's heard of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? Yeah, many of you. Um, C.S. Lewis, if you don't know him, is with the Lord now. He's a, a brilliant uh, author and academic of the 20th century from, from England who wrote many books related to the Christian faith. And screw tape letters was his uh, take on what would a senior demon, what advice would he give to a young, younger apprentice demon in his work to railroad the faith of a new Christian. It's, it's brilliant, very insightful, very illuminating. Uh, he understands human nature deeply, and you can see um, the way in which he's got, just got penetrating insights about the ways that we can become lured or distracted or tempted or baited, all the things that Scripture says Satan and the host of darkness aims and does do. And I haven't read it in probably 20, 25 years, but Peter's been telling me for quite some time, Dad, you need to reread this. He loves it. He reads it every year. And um, so I picked it up yesterday. I started reading it again. And I read probably half of it yesterday afternoon. And while I was reading it, I started to think about our text. And I started to get this kind of this flow of ideas coming about, you know, what, what kind of advice would you give if you were to try to um, constrain or keep followers of Jesus Christ from being faithful to his command and his commission. And I, I, I went to sleep last night having all these ideas flow. And so I thought, I, I, I think this might be from you, Lord. I'm going to just try to put these to paper. So I did this morning, and I'm going to read you a little letter that I wrote as a way of entering into this message. It's from Deceitful. Uh, so he wrote from screw tape to wormwood. I'm going to write in the same vein from deceitful to seed snatcher. Okay. So dear seed snatcher, I was abhorred to learn that you failed in your assignment to keep your subject out of the enemy's camp. There are so many ways that you could have been more effective in keeping him. Oh, I'm going to move from him and her back and forth. So it's one person, but I just want everybody to hear himself in here. Okay. There's so many ways that you could have been more effective in keeping him from beginning to trust the enemy's words. The enemy's God, of course. However, your efforts have not been wasted and your work isn't finished. There is much we can do to neutralize your subject as we seek to bring her back into our camp. But first, we must weather the initial burst of enthusiasm that always seems to follow their trust of the enemy. The best way that I've found to do this is a burst of distraction partnered with discouragement, a family feud, a health crisis, something financial, or if world circumstances permit, turn his attention outward. Cause him to see the incompatibility of the enemy's claim that he's making everything new with the actual circumstances of his world. I suggest highlighting something particularly evil. Let her feel her brokenness. Focus his gaze upon the dirtiness of this world just enough to cause him to begin to question the enemy's goodness while you stir up the distractions. But be careful. Don't be overzealous here. 
the last thing you want to do is cause her to turn to the enemy and start talking to him about these things. Just enough to distract and discourage from sharing his newfound faith until we can cool him off. We want to keep her from focusing on what she's tasted. And we especially want to prevent her from talking about it to others. I and countless others have documented a common phenomenon. If our subjects begin to talk about the enemy, if they begin to share what they've experienced, what they're learning, the strangest thing starts to happen. They actually begin to experience the very things they're talking about right then and there. If they tell the story of their coming to experience that repulsive thing the enemy calls grace, it's as though the enemy allows them to not only recall, but also taste again the thing they're talking about. He has an advantage we can never have. He's working from the inside, and and he can just sort of bubble up these things from within. We want to avoid that at all costs. What I found most helpful here is subtle redirection of a thousand flavors. Remember, not a full frontal assault. We reserve that kind of intimidation for those who live in regions most actively hostile to the enemy and in agreement with our Father. Your subject, I'm told, lives in the United States. Grand Rapids, Michigan, I've heard. This is quite good, and there's much to our advantage here. We've done much to work the separation of church and state to our advantage. Although we actually hate this separation because historically it's made it very hard for us to attack and influence the enemy's camp through that mightiest of tools, a government in the hands of some ideology fueled by our deception, or better yet, a small group of power-hungry men who've come to embody the tyranny and greed of our father, Still, there are always options available to us. Let me explain what those who've worked before you have accomplished. We've spent centuries slowly seeding the idea that this separation means that faith in the enemy is a private thing meant to be kept out of the public square. I only wish you could know how indebted to our work you really are. We've dispatched literally millions of your comrades to attack anyone who spoke of the enemy publicly. We've shamed them. We've distorted their words. We've painted them as fanatics, cowards, intellectual babies. We've used others of their kind to litigate against them. We've harassed, pressured, intimidated, and accused. We know we can't keep them totally silent but we've done our absolute best to keep them isolated, separated from those who don't yet know the enemy. And actually, it hasn't been all that difficult. You see, most of our subjects have two things in common that we've been able to highlight and focus on. First, they love comfort. They are deeply attracted to feeling comfortable and repulsed by discomfort. But second, each one of them has some amount of anxiety when they think about sharing the enemy's story. And so, 
after you've weathered that initial burst of enthusiasm by a distraction, discouragement, and even a little doubt, you'll want to start focusing their attention on their inadequacy. Remind them of how little they know, how early on they are. Tell them they couldn't possibly tell the enemy's story to someone else accurately. Stir up this anxiety just enough to keep it at a subconscious level. You never want to cross that threshold where they begin to talk to the enemy or to each other about it. Just nurse it along, biding your time. You see, the longer they go without any sharing, the easier it will be for this to become an entrenched pattern. If your subject starts to become anxious about their not sharing the enemy's story with others, and if you sense them genuinely wanting to share, your best bet is to steer them gently toward several passages in the enemy's book. Although we usually hate for them to even pick it up, there are ways that we can use his words to our advantage. Have them notice words like, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And then whisper that the enemy only expects them to be ready. They will comfort themselves with being ready as faithfulness. It will calm the anxiety of your subject. And then others can work to divert those who appear to be hungry for what the enemy offers away from your subject. Or when they read, live such goodly li- good, godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, you might assure them that their good behavior in public is all the enemy desires of them. Just keep their trust of the enemy private. If the enemy appears to be stirring within them to share, the old anxieties about sharing can be stirred up from another angle. Whenever they consider actually sharing, do your best to convince them it will be most awkward. Then, turn their attention once again toward their own anxieties. It's always best if you keep their eyes on themselves and highlight another of the enemy's words, those about diversity of gifts among his family, and simply suggest they don't have the gift of sharing. And we've generally found they'll most easily agree with us. Whatever you do, at all costs, keep them away from the enemy's direct commands to tell his story. These are most deadly to us, and we've had to work unspeakably hard to mitigate their influence. You wouldn't believe how long and hard we've slaved to label what their teachers do on Sunday mornings as preaching so that when the enemy's subjects read his commands to preach, they subconsciously assume it's not talking about them. If any of the enemy's subjects actually begins to focus on his command as being for them, change tactics again. This time, start stirring up duty, slavishly. Do it in such a way as to keep your subject completely cut off from the love of the enemy. Whatever you do, keep them far away from the enemy's love. We find that when any one of the enemy's subjects begins to regularly experience the enemy's feelings for others, that one will begin to genuinely long to obey the enemy. And that longing, motivated by love, is most dangerous to us. If your subject reaches this place, 
It's not as though all hope is lost. There are still actions we can take. But I can assure you, if they reach this place, the tables will have turned and you will be on the defensive. Because once they reach this place where love motivates desire to obey, they will be talking to the enemy. And when they're talking to him about their desires and their inadequacy, well, do I need to remind you what happened to his original followers when they started doing this in Jerusalem? Exactly. When they talk to him, when they express their need to him, when they ask him for help, look out. This is when our research tells us that they begin to obey regardless of what they feel or even in the face of discomfort. This kind of obedience is most dangerous. It seems to activate and unleash the activity of the enemy to work with them and through them in ways that can truly compromise our work in so many others. So, seed snatcher. I warn you, as I have warned many others, do absolutely everything you can to prevent your subject from reaching this place of love, motivating obedience, without regard for comfort, despite inadequacy. Now, I've written to you only very briefly, and there's much, much more that I can share, but at this point you will do well to carefully review what I've offered you to start. I've given you plenty of seeds to snow, sow while you snatch others. And remember, always keep your work hidden. Yours truly, deceitful. Don't speak. Don't tell. Don't share what you've seen, what you know, what you've experienced. That was certainly the pressure that these disciples in Jerusalem faced when Jesus found them in this room and when he appeared to them. It was as though all hell through the Jews and the Romans had been unleashed against them. And they were scared. And they were pressured. And they were afraid. And it's most interesting to me that Jesus, loving, gracious, merciful, compassionate, caring, comforting Jesus doesn't appear to them and say, my dear disciples, how fearful and afraid you must be. Let me comfort you. He says, now that you've experienced me, I mean, he doesn't say this, but you've experienced me, the risen one, he says. He gives them this commission that is radical. He says, go out. You're going to leave this room and you're going to go out into that place that is hostile to me, that doesn't appear to be welcoming me, that is bringing pressure against you, that has threatened you, that did kill me, you're going to go out there and I want you to tell the message. And the way that he says it to them is eye-popping. When he says the words, 
go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, he could not have chosen more comprehensive words. So the word world here is cosmos. There's another world for, word for earth, and there's another word for world, and he didn't choose either of those. He said, go out into all the cosmos and declare, proclaim, tell, preach. And the word preach, kerugma or keruso, is the, the word that would be used of a town crier when a town crier would be sent out with news to go and bring a message to a new place. It's somebody who would go and they would stand in a public place and they would announce, I've got news to share. Now, Jesus isn't commanding everyone to stand on sidewalks or on sidewalk pulpits, but what he's doing is he's using imagery that says, you are to announce this gospel publicly to all the cosmos. He says to all creation. And that picture, that word creation is every possible creature. Announce this everywhere. And then he says to them, These signs will accompany you. And he goes through the signs. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those right now. And he says, I'll be with you in Matthew. I'll be with you to the end of the age. And here in Mark it says, he works together with them. And that word works together is synergeo. Synergy. Whenever you obey me, I'll work with you to confirm my words. As I was um, spending time with the Lord this morning in personal devotions, I felt him direct my heart to Luke chapter 10, which is Jesus sending out the 72. And as I began to read, I read the words again where Jesus says to his disciples, ask, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In other words, there is a lot of people waiting for the message of the gospel. There are a lot of people that are hungry, that are needing salvation, life, healing. And yet there are few that are effectively bearing out that message. There are few laborers who are effectively making the connection, telling the message, bringing people in. And then, so what is Jesus' response to that? His response is to say, ask therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And what struck me was there were two words in there. The word ask was not the normal word for ask, but it was earnestly plead, beg the Lord of the harvest to send. And this word send is what caught my attention. Because it's the same word that, that all the Gospels use to describe Jesus casting out demons. It's a strong, powerful Word that literally means to eject or to thrust out. And so here's Jesus. This is the interesting part. Jesus speaking to his own followers about the harvest and saying, now that you see the harvest is ripe, God loves the world. He doesn't want to condemn it. He sent me in to save it. I've got good news. Now, now that you share his heart, earnestly ask him to mobilize and 
thrust out into the world laborers or witnesses for the harvest. Why do you think he needs to ask that we be thrust out? Well, I think, I think it's because it's what we named in this letter. It is naturally uncomfortable to bring a message, even though it is good news, because it's predicated on bad news, because the enemies worked hard among the, the world to sow pressure against the church, antagonism, antagonism against the church. It is not easy. And so there needs to be, the church needs to be compelled into witness, faithful witness for Jesus Christ that shares the gospel. So I want to do two things to close out this message this morning. I want to just say briefly again, three actually, what's the message, what's the heart of the Lord, and what is our need this morning? The message is, if you had to summarize the gospel in one sentence, how would you say it? I'd say, God is restoring all things through Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. God's making all things new. Through Jesus Christ. Billy Graham used to say, the greatest need the human family has is for a new heart. A heart that doesn't lust, doesn't lie, doesn't have greed, doesn't have deception. And the only way to that new heart is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Just a real simple way. We all need a new heart. God, God brings new creation as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, gives a new life, transforms it, and um, he then works it out in our lives. And <clears throat> what did I say? The gospel, the heart of the Lord. Jesus says in this text, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Well, he said earlier in John, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already in condemnation. Our sins condemn us, right? And so the heart of the Lord is to, is to rescue. It's to snatch out. It is to pull back. It is to take away from what the devil's done. That's the heart of the Lord. And the Lord um, asks us, his church, to share his heart, his love, so much that we would say, Lord, I don't care how uncomfortable it may make me at first. I am determined by your grace and with your strength and your help. I'm determined to obey you. I will not, I will not settle down into telling myself that just living a morally upright life that, that looks good to an outsider is enough. I will not settle for waiting for people to ask me Though that's good if they do, um, what, what my hope is, I will, I will obey you. I will learn to tell others, not in forceful ways, not in arrogant ways, not in obnoxious ways, but in kind and loving ways. I will look for, I'll pray for opportunities. I will tell the gospel with my own mouth. I will say, we all have wandered away from God. We all need a Savior. We all need forgiveness of sins. And God has made a way through Jesus Christ. I'll tell that message. And church family, as I'm telling you this, I need that help just as much as the, every single one of you needs that help. I am in this story. 
I have allowed these divisions to grow up in me. The, the keeping separate of the private from the, uh, the public or the, the uh, faith from secular. Right? He wants nothing more than for us to think that the proclaiming, preaching just means proclaiming, okay? that the proclaiming is to happen here in the church. Not, not in my workplace, in the grocery store, at the gas station, with my accountant, wherever it is. Right? And so I believe the Lord this morning is asking us as we begin a new series on working with him to say to, say to him once again, Lord, I'm your servant and I would like you to bring transition in my life to take me to a place of greater faithfulness and fruitfulness in sharing the gospel with others. And I'm going to bring my inadequacy to you. I'm not going to look at my inadequacy, but I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to ask for you, you for help. This is what the disciples are doing in Jerusalem. It's why they obeyed Jesus when he said, don't leave. He said, you're going to take the gospel to the nations, but don't leave until you've been baptized or clothed with the Holy Spirit will give you power or courage, right? Courage is not, it's not something we muster up. It's not something we stir up in ourselves. We don't deposit it in ourselves. We ask the Lord, Lord, help me. I want to go and share with this neighbor or this person or this friend or this family member, and I need your help, and I'm asking, and the Lord gives it. And often we find that he gives it at the moment of our obedience. Often you don't feel anything until you step in to obey and you find then that he gives you exactly what you need. And so we want to close this way, this, this message this morning um, by gathering in groups of four. And, you know, um, I want to, Pastor Gina preached maybe five, six weeks ago. I can't remember exactly how many, but you called us to um, ask the Lord for five names that we would pray for regularly for opportunities. So you could, in, in your... In a group of four, I want us to simply pray for each other for increased opportunity, for increased courage, and increased empowerment from the Spirit to share as Jesus' witnesses. And I'd like to invite that in weeks to come, we would share as part of testimony time opportunities the Lord's given us to to, um, step out in faith and in obedience to Him. And the emphasis will be on faith and obedience. The fruit, the results are up to Him. Uh, the, the whole bit about him working synergetically with us, um, confirming through signs and through deeds, we'll pick all that up as we go through the Gospels. That's not my focus this morning. I think the Lord's focus this morning, I think, I think he's simply saying to us, don't, I had this, this title in mind, I don't often think of sermon titles, but don't make a deal with the devil. Don't agree with him to not speak. Don't agree with him that the gospel is to be limited to certain places. Let my commission to you, when I tell you, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, take my words and my commission and act in obedience to me.